Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan. Welcome back, listeners. We hope you stayed nice and cozy at home this past week in light of the fact of the current pandemic and also the fact that winter is still coming. Oh, yes. <laughs> That's right. Last week's episode was part one of our two-part series exploring the costumes of the much-beloved and critically acclaimed HBO series Game of Thrones. And last week, we spoke about the overarching symbols and colors of each of the nine main families, which are featured over the course of this series' eight seasons. For seven of those seasons, costume designer Michelle Clapton led a wardrobe team of anywhere between 70 to 100 people who were responsible for creating and maintaining the astounding costumes featured on the show. Last week, we discussed specifically the ensembles worn by the characters Sansa Stark, Cersei Lannister, and Daenerys Targaryen. So if you haven't already turned into part one, you might want to hold off on this one and give last week's episode a listen first. Yeah, I would recommend that because they're Um, is some background in last week's episode that definitely informs where we are headed today. And before we go any further, we must once again issue a blanket spoiler alert. (laughs) If you have not seen Game of Thrones or if you haven't seen every episode, it is distinctly possible that we will reveal story arcs and plot points that you might not know about. So proceed with caution. Oh, and, and one more thing, Cass, I wanted to mention last week when I chose the character to speak about in part one. We looked at three of the leading ladies, of course, and and today we're going to um, examine more of the male characters. And I just want to say it was not my intention to divide the episodes by sex in any way, shape, or form. It just kind of happened that way because the the characters of Sansa, Cersei, and Daenerys, their orbit around each other and how they connected in different ways, particularly in in the manner of the symbolism that was embedded in their costumes, um, it just kind of led the discussion from one to another. So there's that. We will talk about the male characters this week. Uh, So who shall we start with today, Cass? Well, last week, let's see, we left off with Daenerys, a.k.a. Khaleesi. Uh, So should we start with one of her paramours, perhaps, and fellow lead character, Jon Snow? Ah, my thinking precisely. A bit of backstory here really informs some of the ensembles we see Jon wear in the initial episodes of Game of Thrones. So despite the fact that Jon is raised at Winterfell by the Stark family and his father is assumed to be Ned Stark, his last name is Snow, which indicates he is a so-called bastard. Basically, back in the day, Ned went away to fight a war and he returned with an infant son, Jon who he presumably had with another woman. He raised John alongside his legitimate children, born of his wife, Caitlin. And while Caitlin had to care for John, she really never fully embraced him as her own. I mean, he is basically a daily reminder of her husband's infidelity. 
Caitlin's feelings for John is uh, one of the reasons costume designer Michelle Clapton dressed John less lavishly than his half-siblings. She really imagined that Caitlin may have consciously or subconsciously slighted her husband's son born out of wedlock. Or was he just saying, right. wink, wink. <laughs> but yes, cast to this point, Clapton says, quote, I wanted him to look like the unloved son. While I dressed Rob Stark in leather like his father, I used linens and cloth for John's costumes to indicate he isn't as well looked after. His cloak, which was trimmed with rabbit fur, is also a bit thinner. This thin cloak with a rabbit collar would also be the same garment that sees John through his transition to becoming a member of the Night's Watch, which is, of course, the military order that mans the wall, the hundred plus foot high frozen monolith that protects the Seven Kingdoms from the wildlings and, as we will see, other unforeseen enemies. The fact that John left the care of one of the Seven Kingdoms' most powerful families, the Starks, for the frozen most region of the realm does not seem to have been accounted for in his clothing. He does not come, in other words, with an especially cold weather appropriate wardrobe. He is a little bit surprised about what he encounters there. Yeah. In fact, Clapton has said, quote, I purposely kept John's look quite constant throughout the series. He experiences so much and does evolve, but he doesn't necessarily reinvent himself. So, in keeping with this, John's costumes don't necessarily contain a lot of the symbolism, like the ladies we spoke about last week, Cass, except for um, the pommel of his sword. His sword is called Long Claw, and the pommel, so the very tip of the hilt, is fashioned as a dire wolf, which is the Stark family sigil or emblem. So, by and large, John's clothes follow the same styles worn by other Stark men, which consisted of a long doublet with a split skirt paired with a long cloak. And the Starks, like other men of the North, also wear either leather-encased armor or padded cloth armor. And Clapton really cast a wide net in terms of gleaning inspiration for this look. She says, I noticed that in Siberia, horsemen wore padded armor for warmth with high-backed collars to protect their necks. Additionally, I loved the long split skirts that I found on Japanese and Persian armor, which allowed for movement, yet would still have been warm. And one feature of the look of the men of the North was born out of practical purposes. Apparently, the long cloaks trimmed with fur were quite heavy, and in order to allow the actors greater ease of movement, Clapton attached leather straps to the capes, which were worn cross-body, and that helped distribute the cape's weight. Even so, she has joked in interviews how Kit Harrington, who, who played Jon Snow, of course, he was always complaining about how heavy his cape was, <laughs> <laughs> so much so that frequently um, the wardrobe assistants and customers on set were carrying it around for him. And, and Cass, I'm pretty sure you can identify with this. <laughs> yeah, I don't have too much experience set costuming, but on the films I have, uh, I have actually spent a few of them carrying around an actor's coat or an actress's high heels, for instance. You know, basically any uncomfortable piece of costume um, that the actor needs to discard between scenes, the costume set costumer will take off their hands and kind of take care of it. That being said, it is to both help with actor comfort and to ensure the integrity of the costume. You know, you don't want anything to happen to it. You don't want an actor taking off his or her coat and leaving it somewhere, which I have also happened many times. Not fun. Kind of terrifying. <laughs> uh, and this actually brings up a position in the costume department that we barely touched on last week, and that's the job of the set costumer. Right. 
Uh, Michelle has her entire team at the office producing, fitting, and prepping costumes to go to set, where a whole other set of set costumers is tasked with taking care of and tracking continuity throughout filming. Set costuming sounds like it is where the action is, Cass. I don't know. Perhaps it's not all fun and games, because we're talking really, really long hours here, I bet. Oh, yeah. And often in the elements, because if you think John and his fellow Night's Watchmen look cold while filming, just imagine the entire crew that's behind the camera, probably hundreds of people. Um, They are probably just as bundled up. And speaking of costumers and the costumers craft, I have to remark that the Adrian Dyers here put a lot of work into the costumes worn by the Night's Watch. The concept was that initiates into the order perhaps arrived at Castle Black with only the ratty, torn clothes on their back, which they continue to, quote, live, eat, and sleep in. When those gave way to wear, the poor order probably relied on charitable donations of clothes from communities in the North, which they were protecting. And as they were all expected to, of course, wear black, members would take those donations and then maybe dye them black themselves. So there's even a scene in one of the episodes where you see them doing this, which was really cool. Yeah, yeah. I found this so interesting. Um, Members of the Night's Watch have to work with what they have, I guess. And as Clapton has said, uh, she conceived that they might continue to re-dye the donated clothing, quote, adding more dye any time the color ran thin. The idea allowed me to create costumes in a rhythm of black and black browns and black greens to add complexity to the palette. I like the idea when the Night's Watch stand together, you would be able to see the different tones within in the blackness. I mean, Cass, taking the vow of the Night's Watch is even referred to as taking the black. So that's how important this color was in in, the, in their costuming. Yeah, and not that dying and dying black, especially back in the day, would have been an easy feat, but this is a fantasy realm and that is a actually talking about dying in like medieval renaissance pre-industrial era is probably an entire episode in and of itself. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Oh, and April, I think this is actually a great time to dispel a bit of a myth surrounding Jon Snow's costume. Oh, well, you know, I love a good bit of myth busting, so I'm in. (laughs) So a while back, it had been reported in the press that the fur collar which drapes Jon's neck and shoulders was a flocati, one of those high-piled wool rugs um, that had been repurposed by the costume department from, of all places, Ikea. (laughs) So it turns out this is not true, but at the same time, it is a true anecdote. Okay, so it's true, but not true. Um, (laughs) I think you're going to have to expand upon that because it seems like there's more to the story here. So apparently there was an Ikea store near the wardrobe studios in Belfast, and Clapton was there one day, and she made an interesting find. She says, I said, wow, look at those amazing wool rugs. And our breakdown team attacked it and shredded it and waxed it and dusted it. And then we added those two leather straps. They were used throughout the series. And sometimes I like that. I like that you have to go and find something and make it work. So this was for the first season when the future of the series was in question. So, you know, the wardrobe department did not necessarily have the, you know, giant budget that they would in later seasons. Purportedly, some of the latter seasons, April, had an overall budget for each episode of $10 million. Wow. (laughs) And so wardrobe, of course, would have gotten a pretty nice chunk of that. Okay, but... That's a lot of money, and you can tell. <laughs> def- you can definitely tell they up their game a bit in terms of the costumes oh, in the latter true. episodes. Yeah. Um. But but back to the story about the rugs. So it seems they were used in the first season 
and throughout the whole series. So what part of that story isn't true? Okay. So while Clapton said it was not Jon Snow that wore the rug turned caped, it was dun, 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 Samuel Tarly. <laughs> ah, yes. That makes sense. Oh, poor Samwell. I do love him, though. Um, when we first meet him in episode four of season one at Castle Black, his cape is one of those aged and dyed Flocati rugs from Ikea. I had no idea. So if you go back and watch the episode or maybe just look up some pictures online, while you may never have guessed before, now that you know, you can totally see how they might have done this. <laughs> That's very cool. I can't wait to go back. Um, we must also talk about maybe one other major departure that we see John make from his standard costume of the North, which is the long doublet and the cloak. And this was during the period of time that he spent with the Wildings. The Wildings consist of several different tribes of free folk who live north of the Wall. And living essentially on a frozen tundra, their costumes consist largely of animal pelts. And Clapton has said, quote, Each Wilding costume was created by hand from different types of fur, layering individual pieces one over another to create coats that were quite heavy to wear. Yeah, and the footwear was actually no exception because the wildlings wear these heavy fur boots with additional wrappings over the boots. And it turns out that this was actually inspired by a practice of Russian soldiers stationed in frozen regions. Clapton says, quote, instead of wearing socks, they wrapped squares of cloth called Port Yankee around their feet. And the practice dates to the 17th century and was still in use up until recent times, end quote. So it would appear that she applied this aesthetic to the exterior of the wildlings' boots, which in reality were hiking boots, <laughs> covered with what can only be described as fur gaiters. Yeah, because you got to make it work, right? You got to work with what you got, <laughs> just like she said. I have a fun fact, cast about the time Jon Snow spends with the Wildings. If you have seen the show, you know that Jon has a romance with the Wilding character, Egret. Well, did you know that this was an on-screen and off-screen hot and steamy romance? <laughs> I know. I just learned recently, maybe a couple months ago, that Kit Harrington and Rose Leslie, who plays Egret, they're married. They met on set playing romantic partners and fell in love, which I think is incredibly sweet. Yeah, and there was there's like images of their wedding too with all of the Game of Thrones <laughs> actors there, I think, um, heading to and from the wedding, which was really, really cool. They're such a sweet couple and their relationship is made all the more heartwarming after we learn of Egret's fate. She lives, people, she lives. And with that touch of the real world, it's time for a brief word or several from our sponsors. Welcome back. Cass, I have to warn you, it's about to get a tad more chilly in here. <laughs> Since we are on this plot line of Jon Snow and the Night's Watch, I thought that it was fitting that we take a moment to talk about the formidable enemy that they face, um, an army of the undead um, White Walkers controlled by the ancient and mysterious Night King. I mean, is there anything more scary and chilling than his on-screen appearances? <laughs> I like more when he would come on the scene more than once. I found myself clutching the couch, like with my hand clasped over my mouth, and like just like so tense, not knowing what was about to happen. Oh, yeah. 
and he did not have a ton of screen time, but the Night King was an incredibly important character, as we know, and his very existence is kind of, well, it's kind of a catalyst of one of the major plot lines, if not the major overarching plot line of the entire series, really. So Clapton gave careful consideration to his depiction, as she does with everything, but she initially was a bit stymied. She wanted him to wear armor, but says, quote, I had a difficult time imagining how he plausibly might have found or forged a suit of armor. After I discussed it with David and Dan, who, as you know, April were the executive producers and the showrunners, meaning they really oversaw the direction of the entire series. Mm -hmm. Um, She says after she talked to them, quote, that I suggested it then that in the Night King's journeys, he perhaps discovered the ruins of an ancient civilization and scavenged pieces from that site. I wanted the costume to look as though he had bent pieces of old architecture or relics around his body to create something that isn't armor in the traditional sense. I mean, she thinks of everything. I know. <laughs> I, I wonder, I just want to see her notes. You know, she probably has like notebooks full of like notes and ideas aside from all of her sketches, which we have been posting on Instagram and will continue to do so. So check out our Instagram for that. And that precise reason that she didn't want the armor to look traditional is if you look at it really closely, it's not very refined. It looks kind of broken and it has like jagged raw pieces of metal jutting out in certain places. And because of this, Clapton also said that they had to build two different sets of costumes for each Night King ensemble. They had one using actual metal for close-ups and another replica of the costume that uses a hard leather so the actors who played the Night King could actually safely move about um, in in the context of some of the stunts that, that were required of them. The Night King was far from the only character for whom armor was a concern. For others, it was even a necessity by, of course, the very nature of their vocation. The first character for whom this is the case that immediately comes to mind for me is the Hound. (laughs) When we first meet him, he's serving King Joffrey as his bodyguard. And later he would become kind of like, I guess, a sword for hire of sorts. And as such, his protective armor is essential for his livelihood. And somewhat unique, in fact, uh, the helmet of his suit of armor is sculpted to resemble a fearsome, vicious dog, henceforth, or maybe even because of his moniker, the Hound. And as strange as this may seem, Cass, this style was very much rooted in examples of historic armor from the Italian Renaissance, when knights sometimes used helmet styles that featured grotesque masks that were either in the shape of animal or human heads. And I went poking around a little bit for some more information on these styles of armor and on the Metropolitan Museum of Arts uh, Department of Arms and Armor website, I found um, some information saying that these fanciful styles were mainly reserved for ceremonial occasions or tournaments, which makes perfect sense because while of course they are very frightening and scary, (laughs) they aren't particularly practical for battle, right? You don't need all that excess ornamentation. So Clapton um, was probably quite aware of this because um, we see the hound wearing his hound helmet at a particular festival battle that was between dueling challengers. Another one of the characters who depends on armor for her vocation is Brienne of Tarth, who I happen to know is one of your favorites, Cass. Do you want to talk about her? 
Yes, I absolutely love her. It would be my pleasure. She, of course, is played by the incredible Gwendolyn Christie. And Brienne of Tarth is a lady by birth, but her one true desire is to become a knight. She's a trained warrior, and as such, armor is very much a part of her day-to-day. I mean, she's such a badass, let's be honest. Clapton made some very conscious decisions in designing armor for her, uh, noting, I didn't want her breastplate to have a, quote, you know, breast shape. I felt that because she's been so deep deeply hurt by the fact that she doesn't conform to male ideas about what women should be, that this would embarrass her. And Brienne is incredibly sensitive. Yeah, she is. And and this is what makes her character so special and, and easy to love. She has this unadulterated earnestness. She's very serious about things. But Clapton didn't want to entirely forego the fact that uh, Brienne is, of course, a woman. And while she does wear the same long-skirted doublets that we see um, on other male characters, Brienne's armor is just a touch more elegant. Clapton has said, quote, I designed V-shaped lines on her breastplate to create a more feminine profile without being too overt about her gender. Also, a fun thing to look for, for any of you who might be going back to watch the show again, once Brienne returns to Winterfell, you will notice that she adopts that same crossbody strapped style of cloak worn by the Stark men. And at this point, she had, of course, pledged her fealty to Caitlyn Stark. So it follows that she may also adopt the same style of clothing in honor of the family that she now serves. Who are some of your other favorite characters, Cass? Well, who cannot help but be charmed by Lord Tyrion Lannister's ceaseless antics and sardonic wit? I love him. (laughs) (laughs) I know, me too. Played by Peter Dinklage, with whom, Cass, I have been neighbors twice. (laughs) Have I ever told you this story? You have not, but you tell me your Peter Dinklage story, and then I'll tell you mine. <laughs> oh, okay. This is going to be good. Um, well, we were, were neighbors of sorts, really, because back when I first moved to York many, many years ago, I live in the East Village, and at least twice a week, walking to the train, I would see Peter and his dog at the corner coffee shop, and we would see each other so often, it became kind of one of those, hey, what's up? I see you all the time in the neighborhood, like head nod situations. <laughs> You know, the nonverbal, hey, what's up? So fast forward 12 years or so and living in Brooklyn, turns out he lived just around the corner again. (gasps) So I just want to say New York is not as always as big as people think it is sometimes. No, it really, it can be quite a small (laughs) place, actually, surprisingly. I actually had the pleasure of working with Peter many moons ago before Game of Thrones. I probably would have way fangirled out even more. (laughs) Um, But in 2009, I think it was, I did this little movie called St. John of Las Vegas with uh, Peter Dinklage and Steve Buscemi and Sarah Silverman. And I was, um, that was one of my very first set costuming gigs. And Peter was there for a couple days filming. So I got to meet him and work with him. And that was really, really cool. Um, That's cool. And Tyrion is one of my absolute favorite characters. And Peter is hands down, I have to say, one of the best actors of the entire show. Yeah, for sure. He won a Golden Globe for his role. He was nominated for nine primetime Emmys, and he won four of them. So shout out to Peter. Yeah. But we digress. Back to Tyrion's costumes. Much like we discussed with Daenerys' costumes in the last episode, the color palette of Tyrion's clothing reflects really his character's journey. So at the beginning of the series, he often wears shades of burgundy as of course, red was the color of the House of Lannister. Not exactly the bright cherry red worn by his sister Cersei, but darker. And this slight separation really is a harbinger of things to come. 
After the irrevocable break with his family, Tyrion travels around a bit until he encountered Daenerys, aka Khaleesi, mother of dragons, and his family's sworn enemy as she held a legitimate claim to the Iron Throne on which the Lannisters at that point now sat. The fact that he aligns himself with Khaleesi is all the more poignant when we remember that Tyrion had served as the hand of the king to his nephew, the young King Joffrey. This then made Tyrion the second most powerful man in all of Westeros. But the Lannisters' family cruelty and treachery was far too much for the principled Tyrion to indulge. His cunning candor and knack for political strategy become of great value to Khaleesi, who eventually asks him to become her right hand. So basically, he switches sides, Cass, from from being the second-in-command of the Lannisters to being the second-in-command for the Targaryens. Yes, so if you've ever wondered about the pen that Tyrion wears on his doublet for a large portion of this series, it first indicates his rank with the Lannisters, but later Khaleesi gives him a new pen, which is practically identical in style, which represents his position within her ever-growing legion of devotees. Also at this time, we see Tyrion's color palette switch to blues and blacks, and you may recall from part one that Khaleesi often wore blue as it was the sacred color of her Dothraki followers. From time to time, Tyrion now also wears textiles which give the impression of dragon scales, another nod to his allegiance to his new queen. So what about you, April? Who are some of your other favorite characters? Well, in last week's episode, I mentioned that I was a big fan of all of the costumes seen in Dorne, which was ruled by the Martell family. And Clapton says, quote, they aren't bound by the same conventions surrounding marriage and family and sexuality that holds sway in King's Landing. These are full-blooded people determined to live and die by their own rules. And for that very reason, she looked at, she says, styles popularized by the late 1960s and early 1970s American counterculture, which fit the Dornish anti-establishment ethos, which I thought was fascinating. Hippies. That's <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I never would have, have made that connection, but now that you've, you've brought it to my attention, it does actually. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of flower children in that yeah. realm. And many of those costumes that we see in Dorne are quite sexy. Uh, Clapton invoked color palettes of India with those hot yellows and oranges, often offsetting them with references to snakeskin and sunburst radial motifs. The sigil of the House of Martell is a spear piercing the sun. One particular ensemble worn by the Dornish prince Oberyn Martell blends all of these aesthetic markers. It's this really beautiful golden-hued robe with a fitted torso and and that long flaring skirt that really brings to mind the silhouette and textiles employed in Indian coats such as the Jama and Angarka. Oberyn's coat has been embroidered with these scattered sunburst motifs and the center front trim of his robe and undershirt are rendered in yet another golden hue that bears a snake scale pattern. Quite fitting April for a ruler dubbed the Red Viper because of his penchant for exterminating his enemies by way of poison. Yes, very sneaky. Also sneaky, I was personally quite smitten by the sand snakes, Cass. Um, Oberyn apparently had eight, yes, eight illegitimate daughters. It's <laughs> <laughs> a lot of daughters. I wonder how, yeah. <laughs> they never really say how many sons he's had, or, right. or maybe I missed that part. But the three eldest of his daughters 
Tyene, Obara, and Nymeria, they formed this triumvirate of trained lethal fighters known as the Sand Snakes. And again, just like their father, they favor this same hot color palette. Um, they wear gold and saffron silks and warm caramel leathers. Um, and, they, and you'll notice that this leather is almost always em- embossed with snakeskin motifs. And their jewelry and all of their accessories are rife with all these serpentine references. And I, I just love this barely there, ready for any kind of action style of the sand snakes. They're, they're, they're kind of badasses. Yeah, they're awesome. So many incredible women characters throughout this entire series. It's hard not to talk about all of them. I know. Um, and speaking of jewelry, April, we will probably hear from quite a few of our listeners if we do not speak about the character of Melisandre. Oh, yes. She is another of my favorite characters. Uh, you are always wondering, what exactly is she up to? Is she good? Is she evil? Do these polarities of morality even apply in her world? What world is she from? <laughs> so more on The Red Woman right after this sponsor break. Welcome back. So Melisandre, the high priestess of the Lord of Light, it seems her loyalties lie to the fire god Raylor first and her human fellow worshipers of the Lord of Light second. So author George R.R. R. Martin names her the Red Woman and in the book. So it goes without saying that this is her signature color in varying shades um, from blood red to deep, deep burgundies. She also wears the same choker necklace with golden geometric openwork and a large matte stone in virtually every scene in which she appears. Our first clue that this necklace might be something more than the dormant comes when she invokes the power of the Lord of Light to perform sorcery and that red stone begins to glow. Yeah, the necklace's magic powers turn out to be a glamour of sorts. And by glamour here, I mean a spell or enchantment. Because in episode one of season six, we see Melisandre remove the necklace for the very first time. And the camera cuts away, but then focuses back on her reflection in in a wavy mirror on a table. And it's not the ruby-haired beauty that we know that is reflected back, but rather a wizened old woman. And the necklace, it it seems, is revealed at this point to be a talisman giving her preternaturally long life um, and youth, or at least the appearance of, to whoever wears it. And I just want to stress here, I mentioned this um, in part one of this episode, but Clapton has said on the record that any piece of jewelry she designed for the show was always highly symbolic. Um, it always had a meaning or a reason for being there. It wasn't just ornamentation. Perhaps this is the most true for Melisandre, who by the end of the saga, we realize that the necklace was connected to her longevity. Well, the show never really makes it explicit. It has been put forth that the character of Melisandre is in fact hundreds of years old. And I just want to say that her last scene is just heartbreakingly beautiful. I know. I, I cried. Know. I, know. I don't know Me if anyone too. else did. <laughs> I mean, that, that last series, season, I don't even know how to talk about it, but um, uh, I have lots of opinions that we will not express here. Um, April, before we wrap up, maybe we could just quickly discuss some other fun tidbits of sorts about some additional characters. I mean, Clapton thought so deeply about things that simply can go unnoticed on screen. I mean, you know, sometimes they're just a flash on camera. For instance, when the character of Arya, another badass warrior girl turned young woman, one of my favorite characters, when she was in Bravos and she's masquerading as an oyster seller on the wharfs in order to stock a target, Clapton says, 
I loved the idea of rusted costumes. For these scenes, I created a Romani-inspired costume with a whirling dervish-style skirt made from fabric that actually contained metal and had been treated with vinegar to give it a rusted appearance. The costume even smelled vaguely metallic. That's amazing. And you want to talk about something you don't catch on screen? Well, scent would certainly be one of those things, right? <laughs> right. I, I don't know about you, but I don't have smell-o-vision in my house. Um, <laughs> another set of rather odiferous costumes, but in a surprisingly pleasant way, apparently were that of the House of Greyjoy. Being the seafaring people of the Iron Islands, it's no surprise that Clapton took much of her initial inspiration from the sea. She says, quote, I often walked on the beach when we were filming in Northern Ireland, and I remember noticing the way that the lichen and the muscles on the rocks had a particular sheen. That became the inspiration for the Greyjoy's look, the coloring, waxing, and minimal ornamentation. Their clothing is the same color as the rock, all shades of slate and granite. The costumes appear to be made from leather, but in reality, they were all crafted from densely woven linen cloth coated with beeswax to give it texture. Now, I bet that smelled heavenly. Apparently it did. Uh, Clapton once remarked that, well, they look like they probably smelled like salt and sweat. The beeswax created a really lovely perfume, which is great. Yeah. And one other fun note about the Greyjoys, even if that feels like an oxymoron fun in Greyjoys, I'm just going to say. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you're saying. Ah, I don't think we have yet mentioned their house sigil because it might just be one of my favorite of all the houses and I had no idea about it before this episode. And it's this mythical sea creature from the deep, the Kraken, aka a gigantic squid. Yes, this was a fun surprise to me. I never noticed it at all on the show, but if you look, Theon has it embroidered on cloaks, um, the Kraken motif, and also his armor and on his doublets, they almost always have a Kraken high up on the chest. And Euron, on the other hand, um, Euron Greyjoy being a tad more flamboyant, <laughs> he's kind of like the rock star of all the Greyjoys. Right. <laughs> he has the legendary sea monster also on the breastplate of his armor. He has a, a multi-tentacled kraken high up on his chest, but then on the belly of his armor, he has like an enormous single kraken eye, which is very cool. <laughs> also, April, I have to say that Davos is one of my favorite of the secondary characters. I loved him so much as the father in A Little Princess. I don't know if you've seen that movie. It's one of my favorite childhood movies. Um, Liam Cunningham, he plays uh, the dad in A Little Princess. He plays Davos. He will always be number one to me. <laughs> Uh, despite not being one of the show's central figures, perhaps, he plays a very important role, and his backstory is quite elaborate, actually. Based on his past, Clapton quite cleverly conceived of one of his accessories. So if you look closely, he always seems to wear a gathered pouch around his neck, and you're never going to guess what's inside of it. Well, this is Game of Thrones, so I'm going to go with <laughs> poison, gold, a vial of wildfire, maybe? <laughs> Those are all excellent guesses, educated guesses. But what's actually inside that pouch are four severed fingers. <laughs> His own four uh, severed fingers, or what remains of them, I should say. <laughs> yikes. 
Oh, yes. Davos was formerly a smuggler, and he came to be part of the Baratheon entourage, so to speak, when he saved Stannis Baratheon's men from starvation by bringing them a cargo of onions. Ever after that, he was dubbed the Onion Knight. But to remind him of his past as a thief, Stannis lopped off four of his fingers. Clapton says, quote, the smuggler keeps the bones close to his body as a constant reminder to remain on the right side of the law. I worked subtle details into the design of the pouch that were intended to suggest the layers of an onion that has been cut in half. So regardless of his past, Davos has to be one of the most honorable characters in the entire series. Okay. I mean, I'm not quite sure we're going to be able to top that little bit of business. We we have an onion-gifting pirate who wears his own severed digits around his neck in a little onion pouch. (laughs) I mean, it's cheeky. It's a bit of a pun, really, from a design standpoint. And I think that might just be a nice, lighthearted way to wrap up our discussion and also to illustrate the extraordinary amount of thought and finesse that Clapton and her team put into costuming Game of Thrones. And I have a treat for everyone. Some of you may be wondering how we did the research for this episode. Well, first, I tracked down every single interview with Michelle Clapton I could find and either read or watched them all. Uh, The show was film for almost 10 years cast so it goes without saying that she gave quite a lot of interviews also hbo did this really cool behind the scenes initiative as well called making game of thrones which is a series of short documentary films and clapton did several about what went into creating all the costumes for the show Um, you can actually head on over to makinggameofthrones.com to learn more not just from clapton but many of the other creators who worked on the show throughout its run it's super fun beware though it is a rabbit hole my friends you might spend all day on this site but if you're a game of thrones fan like april or i it is well worth it (laughs) and that's not even the treat that i have for you all. Besides my copious notes from all the interviews that Clapton gave, there's also a book. It's an incredible book. It's called Game of Thrones, The Costumes. It was written by Michelle Clapton and Gina McIntyre. So a lot of the super duper detailed things that we have discussed came from this gloriously illustrated coffee table book. And there is so much more in the book that we didn't even have time to cover. Uh, We just covered some of the highlights. And Cass, as you know, the images in the book are gorgeous. You you have no clue of the artistry in a lot of these costumes until you see the detail shots. It's it's just mind-blowing. It really is incredible. And perhaps some of our listeners have actually seen these costumes up close and in person because since 2013 or so, they have been touring in a Game of Thrones exhibition all over the world. And this included set pieces and costumes from previous seasons. So before the pandemic, of course. This exhibition was open in a museum in Madrid, Spain, with an ultimate goal for many of the costumes to finish this tour in Belfast, where a permanent exhibition was slated to open spring 2020. So we'll have to keep keep our ears open for adjustments to that, but I'm sure it's still to come. Yes, and, and it may be a bit before we can all travel to Belfast to see the permanent exhibition. So in the meantime, we highly rec- recommend checking out the book. I devoured the entire thing in two days, and I must say it's been such a delight learning more about all the iconography embedded in all of these garments of the characters who we were really so invested in and devoted to for the better part of a decade. 
Of course, all of us fans were so sad to see the series end, uh, which is why I'm watching it again from the beginning. (laughs) Uh, As were the cast and crew. Clapton has remarked in an interview that, quote, we became a family over eight years. The same people came back year after year. So we knew where we were going. We knew everyone's ability and we all grew so much within the show. I think we all feel like we can do almost anything now. This was a monumental undertaking in the history of television and one that couldn't have happened without the collaboration and cooperations of thousands of people. And Cass, I think this is a nice reflection in our current moment because we are stronger together and together we can affect astounding change. And oftentimes the change that the world needs flourishes from a space of creativity, which in turn breeds innovation and progress. And I don't want to get sentimental here, but when you understand all of the love and the craft and the care that went into the show um, and the costumes in particular that maybe you didn't catch at first, it really makes the show all that more poignant and special. And I'm, like I said, I'm sure many of you are already joining me in rewatching Game of Thrones from the beginning, or perhaps you're lucky and you've never seen it, <laughs> which I'm so jealous of those people. And April and I have perhaps sparked your interest to check it out. Either way, just enjoy it. And that does it for our two part series on the saga that was and remains Game of Thrones dress listeners. Please consider incorporating a little legacy and symbolism into your wardrobe next time you get dressed. Please join us on Thursday for our mini-sode where we answer listener questions and or keep you up to date on the latest in the field of fashion studies. If you'd like to submit a question for a future FHM, you can email us at dressed at iheartmedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, where every day we post images to accompany each week's episode. This is also our Twitter handle. As always, a big old thank you to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each week. Everyone, please stay safe, be well, and we will catch you at the mini-sode on Thursday. Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.